ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد so today then insha'Allah ta'ala we begin with the actual book. Last week we did a general introduction regarding this book that we're going to be studying. Kashf al-Shubuhat, the removal of the doubts. Today then we'll begin with the opening section of the book. And most of you will have the workbooks so you can follow along on the section that we are on. The opening then, he begins with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, the Basmalah, as it is known as. And this beginning is something you will notice from all of the scholars that they begin their books with. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. They begin their books by mentioning the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, by praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, by sending the prayers upon the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This type of beginning to a book is something common that you will notice from the scholars. Particularly, beginning with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, beginning with the Basmalah, because as the scholars have mentioned, this style of beginning books is taken from the Quran, the Sunnah, and from the practice of the Prophet ﷺ when sending notes or messages or letters to the rulers and people, he would begin with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. As for the Quran, because all of the chapters of the Quran begin with the Basmalah. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, except Surah Tawbah. Except for Surah Tawbah. Besides that, all of the other chapters of the Quran at the beginning you see Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. So that's something which is found in the Quran itself to begin with the Basmalah. In the Sunnah and the practice of the Prophet ﷺ, it is also noted that when he used to send messages, send letters, calling people to Islam, maybe he would write a letter to a leader of another place, inviting them to Islam, then those correspondences would begin with the Basmalah. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. 
So to begin with this, then it's something which is learnt from the Qur'an itself and from the practice of the Prophet ﷺ too. And that's why you see many books, all the books basically, beginning with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. It is to emulate and to follow in the style of the Quran and to emulate and copy the style of the Prophet ﷺ. The next thing to mention is what is the meaning? The meaning of Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. In English, they will say, in the name of Allah, the most beneficent and the most merciful, I think. In the English, that's what they will say, in the name of Allah, the most beneficent and the most merciful, or the most merciful and the most beneficent. But what does that really mean? What does Bismillah really mean it means in the name of Allah but the point of that really is that you are saying astainu billah that I seek aid and assistance in Allah in the name of Allah when you say bismillah it means I seek aid and assistance from Allah. In what? In whatever you're going to do. So if you are about to write a book, then it's like you are saying, in the name of Allah, I seek aid and assistance from Allah in writing this book. If you are going to give a lecture, and you say Bismillah at the beginning, then it's like you're saying, in the name of Allah, I seek aid and assistance in delivering this lecture. You're about to do some other action, some other thing, whatever it might be, from the affairs of goodness, and you begin by saying, Bismillah, then it's like you are saying, in the name of Allah, I seek aid and assistance from Allah, in whatever it is you're about to do. Grammatically in Arabic they say there is a verb missing there. The verb missing is whatever you're about to do. So Bismillah Akra. In the name of Allah I read. Seeking aid and assistance from Allah in reading. Bismillah Aktub. In the name of Allah seeking aid and assistance I write. So whatever you're about to do, you say the Bismillah at the beginning, in the name of Allah, you're about to begin that action, meaning you are seeking aid and assistance from Allah in that action you're about to do. The ba, they call it lilisti'ana, the ba for seeking aid and assistance in the name of Allah. Meaning, I am seeking the aid and assistance from Allah. Bismillah. 
Allah, of course, is the name Allah, and that is, as many scholars say, Al-Ismul A'zam, and there are others too, but Allah is known as the greatest name of Allah, and there are others. One of the reasons why the scholars, they say, Allah is the greatest name of Allah, because all of the other names of Allah, they are referenced back to Allah. So you might say, for example, Ar-Rahman is one of the names of Allah. Ar-Rahim is one of the names of Allah. But do you ever hear anyone say, Allah is one of the names of Ar-Rahman. Allah is one of the names of Ar-Rahim. You don't hear it that way around. Rather you hear all of the other names being attributed back and referenced back to Allah. So Allah, the greatest name, Allah. And the meaning of that name, Allah, Al-Ilah, meaning Al-Ma'luh, Al-Ma'bud, the one who is worshipped. Allah is Al-Ma'bud, Al-Ma'luh, the one who is worshipped. That's the meaning of Allah, the one who is to be worshipped. And so it indicates what's known as Al-Uluhiyyah, that we single out all of our worship, whatever that form of worship may be, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the one deserving of worship alone, the unique, the single deserving of worship alone. So Bismillah, in the name of Allah, I seek aid and assistance in Allah. Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. Those are two of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because Allah has many different names. And Allah has told us many of His names in the Qur'an. And the Prophet ﷺ has told us many of the names of Allah in the Sunnah. Allah has many different names, all of them indicating the perfection of Allah, all of them beautiful and perfect names with the greatest and the pinnacle of perfection in them, no deficiency at all. No shortcoming at all, the perfect and beautiful names of Allah. So Allah has many names, and you come across them in the Qur'an. When we say Allah has many names, it doesn't mean people make up names for Allah. Allah has many names, i.e. the ones that Allah has told us about Himself in the Qur'an. And the ones the Prophet has told us about in the Sunnah. And there are many. In a hadith, 
in Al-Bukhari, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam mentioned, إِنَّ لِلَّهِ تِسْعَةً وَتِسْعِينَ اسْمَا مَنْ أَحْصَاهَ دَخَلَ الْجَنَّةِ That indeed, Allah has 99 names. Whomsoever memorizes them, learns them, understands them, practices upon them, will enter paradise. So based upon that narration, some people they say that the names of Allah are how many? 99. 99. But it should be known, take note, it is incorrect to say that the names of Allah are 99. This hadith does not mean that Allah only has 99 names. Allah has more than 99 names. And we don't know exactly how many Allah has, because Allah hasn't told us all of His names yet. There are some of the names of Allah we do not know yet. Others Allah has told us in the Quran, in the Sunnah, like Ar-Rahman is one of the names of Allah, Ar-Rahim is one of the names of Allah, Al-Ghafoor, Al-Sami' many names that we know of that Allah told us in the Quran and the Sunnah. But there are others not in the Quran and the Sunnah that Allah hasn't told us yet. How do we know that? Because the Prophet told us in a hadith that there are other names Allah has kept in the knowledge of the unseen that we do not know of yet. So we cannot say that the names of Allah are only 99. That's a common mistake amongst the people. You even see the posters, the 99 names of Allah. It's a mistake to think Allah only has 99 names. Allah has more than that and we don't know how many. So Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim are two of the names from the various names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they both indicate the uh, attribute of mercy. That Allah is the one who has mercy. Because every name of Allah has a meaning, has an attribute, a description that comes from it. So the name Allah has the description that came from it. We just mentioned it. Al-Uluhiyyah, that He is the one to be worshipped, the one deserving of worship. That's what comes from Allah. Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim, from them comes Rahmah, mercy. That if Allah's name is Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim, then He must have mercy. Every name of Allah indicates something. It is the people of innovation who incorrectly say that the names of Allah don't have any attributes, they don't have any descriptions. That's wrong. How can you say the name of Allah is the merciful, but He doesn't have any mercy? Makes no sense. Rather, Allah is the merciful who has mercy, mercy upon His creation, mercy in the air that you breathe, in the food that you eat, in the water that you drink, 
the clothes that you wear, the shelter upon your heads, all of that from the mercy of Allah upon His creation. So Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim are two of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala indicating the mercy of Allah. That's just in brief. You study those types of things in specialist books on those topics. The exact meanings of every name of Allah and the exact uh, attribute from every name, that's in other books. For now, enough to know that Bismillahirrahmanirrahim means in the name of Allah, i.e. I seek aid and assistance from Allah, the Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim, the merciful, the most beneficent, the one attributed with mercy. So that's how the scholars would begin their books. With Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. When you come across other books, you see others at the beginning, you'll notice Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So here he began in that same way. قَدَّمَ الْمُؤَلِّفُ رَحِمَهُ اللَّهِ بَعْدَ الْبَسْمَلَةِ مُقَدِّمَةِ نَافِعَةِ فِي بَيَانِ حَقِيقَةِ دِينِ الْمُرْسَلِينَ وَمَا دَعَوْا إِلَيْهِ The Shaykh who explains this book, the explanation that we're going to be reading from, he mentions that at the beginning now, there is an introduction from the author himself. Because remember, this book, Kashf al-Shubuhat, the exposition of the doubts. There were certain doubts that some of the mushrikun, some of those who believed in intercession with the dead and the graves, etc., they brought certain doubts against the sheikh to try and say your aqidah is wrong and ours is right. So then the sheikh refuted and replied to all of those doubts and clarified the correct aqidah. And that's what you will learn in this book, the correct aqidah and an explanation of the arguments people use against that correct aqidah. But before he begins with any of those doubts, and any of those explanations about them, there is an introduction he wrote himself, and that's what we're going to be reading from initially to begin with. In this introduction, he explains <coughs> the religion of all of the messengers, the religion of Nuh alayhi salam, Musa alayhi salam, Isa alayhi salam, Ibrahim alayhi salam, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, the religion of all of the prophets and messengers, what was it? He explains that in the introduction, and we'll come across that right now, insha'Allah ta'ala. So he says, I'lam rahimakallah. No, this is now the author, Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab saying this. I'lam rahimakallah. No, may Allah have mercy upon you. This is another thing you will notice a lot 
in the books of a Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, that you can see from his writings how enthusiastic he is and how much compassion he has in wanting the students to learn the correct knowledge. That he says right at the beginning, before going into any points or even going into the introduction, he starts by saying, no, meaning focus and pay attention now. Learn this carefully. Know these details that he's about to mention. He wants you to learn them. He wants the people to understand. He has that compassion for the students to such an extent that the book, the other book that the Shaykh wrote, he has another book called The Three Fundamental Principles. That book is all about the three questions everybody is asked in their graves. When you die, the angels, they come to you in the barzakh, in your grave, and they ask you those questions, Man Rabbuka, who is your Lord? And Ma Dinuka, what is your religion? And Man Nabiyuka, who is your prophet? Three questions, amongst others perhaps, but those three questions are the basis of that other book he wrote, the three fundamental principles. In that book, he gives you the three questions, one chapter on each one, and explains the answer. But the point I was going to make regarding that, is that that book, the Shaykh wrote it three times. Wrote the same book three times. From his compassion and mercy and wanting the students to learn, he wrote the book three times. One in normal grammar Arabic, the fusha, the normal Arabic that the educated would understand. Another one in slang Arabic, because some people, they may not be educated to a good level. They may not be, as we say in the UK, A-levels and university and degree. A person may not be like that. Some people may be simple folk, that they don't have a high level of language even. They don't have any education, barely literate possibly. So he wrote another version of the same book in slang Arabic. That even those who are uneducated, they've never done academics, they can still read it and understand it all. Then on top of that, he wrote another version of the same book in children's language to make it easy for the kids, a version for the kids. To this level, it shows you how the Shaykh wanted the people to learn and to understand. So often in his books you see, he will say, I'lam, have knowledge of this, learn it carefully. Focus on what's going to be said now. And then also, Rahimakallah. May Allah have mercy upon you. That's what? It is a dua. He is making a dua for the readers, a dua for the students, asking Allah to have mercy upon you. 
Again, that shows the sincerity of the Shaykh. Sincere in wanting to teach this knowledge, in wanting to educate the students, making dua for them. May Allah have mercy upon you, shows his sincerity. So even in the style of how the Shaykh wrote the book and his other books, you can pick up on the character of the Shaykh that he wanted good. He wanted goodness for the people, wanted them to understand and to recognize their religion in detail, to be aware of their aqidah, to be saved ultimately on the day of judgment. So he says, اعلم رحمك الله أن التوحيد هو إفراد الله سبحانه وتعالى بالعبادة اعلم رحمك الله أن التوحيد هو إفراد الله سبحانه وتعالى بالعبادة as a side point, the version that I read, that's the version you should correct all of yours upon. Whatever version of the books you might have here or online, those listening, there are many different copies of Kashfa Shubuhat, many different versions printed, even the workbook, everything. Whatever you have, correct your versions upon how it is read in the lesson. This version I have, they say it is the most accurate version based upon multiple manuscripts. Manuscripts written by hand by some of the students of the Shaykh 300 years ago. Original manuscripts of the book where they found handwritten versions of the book. Handwritten versions, multiple different handwritten versions and so this is the most accurate copy of Kashf al-Shubuhat. So rectify all of your copies upon the text that is read in class out loud. اعلم رحمك الله أن التوحيد هو إفراد الله سبحانه وتعالى بالعبادة Know may Allah have mercy upon you that Tawheed that Tawheed, it is to single out Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with worship. Who can tell us something about that definition? He says Tawheed is to single out Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with worship. Who can tell us something about that definition? Hands up, anyone? Affirmation and negation. Anything else? Um, the Sheikh chose to define Tawheed as um, singing Allah out with worship, even though there are different aspects of Tawheed. So this definition of Tawheed it is focusing on one aspect of Tawheed. Ifradullahi subhanahu wa ta'ala bil-ibadah. Singling out Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with your worship. 
That's known as Tawheed al-Uluhiyyah. Because everybody should take note now, Tawheed, Tawheed, it is to single out Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. To single out Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. To make Allah unique and one. In what regard? How? Make Allah unique and one and single? In what sense? In three senses. The first, in what is known as Ar-Rububiyyah. Ar-Rububiyyah, the Lordship of Allah. To single out Allah in His Lordship. Lordship covers what? It covers that Allah is the Creator, the sole one Creator, the only sustainer, the only provider, the only one who sends the rain upon us and brings the vegetation forth, the only one who gives life and death, the only one who created the whole universe, the only one who controls the whole universe, all of those things only done by Allah alone. So we single out Allah in His Lordship, meaning in the actions that He does. There are certain things only Allah can do. They are known as His Lordship. Certain things only Allah can do. The Lordship of Allah covers those things. In Arabic known as Ar-Rububiyyah. What are those certain things as examples that only Allah can do and no one else at all? Creation, for example, that Allah created all of the universe, created everything in existence. He alone created it all. Nobody aided him. Nobody participated with him. Nobody helped him. Allah is one and single and unique in his action of creating everything. That's one example. Another example, giving life and death. Allah is one and single and unique in his action of giving life and death. Nobody else can give life. Nobody else can give death. Another action that is specific to Allah is in the Lordship of Allah, the Rububiyyah of Allah. That everything which happens in the world, in the creation, all of that decree, everything that happens is done by the will of Allah, is by the control of Allah. That is Allah one and single and unique in that. Nobody else controls what happens in the universe. Nobody else has any control of what happens and what is decreed and how this and how that. Everything and the control of it in the universe is for Allah alone. These types of actions then are actions that are specific to Allah. Nobody else can do those types of things. Only Allah alone. That's known as one of the categories of Tawheed, the Rububiyyah, the Lordship of Allah.
In a nutshell, it means you are singling out Allah, making Him one and unique in terms of His actions. To make Allah one and single and unique in His actions, like creation of the universe, like giving life and death, like controlling everything and what happens, like sending down the rain and giving us our provisions, all of those actions, only Allah can do them. Nobody else participated or aided Allah in them. That's the Lordship of Allah, the Rububiyyah of Allah, that we single out Allah in those actions that only He can do. Then there is another type of Tawheed, and that's known as the Tawheed of worship. <coughs> the first one was known as Tawheed of the Lordship. The second one is the Tawheed of worship. And this category of Tawheed, it is to single out Allah, make Him one and unique in terms of our actions. The Lordship was to single out Allah one and unique in His actions, creation, everything we said. Al-Uluhiyyah, the second category, the Tawheed of worship, is that we single out Allah with our actions. What are our actions? that we have to single out Allah with? Hands up. Go on over there. Which, uh, uh, go on. Prayer, okay, excellent. That's an example there. Prayer, we single out Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with our prayer. That's an act of worship. Dua. Single out Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with our action of making dua. Anything else? Hmm? Zakat. Tawheed is what we're talking about. But you're right, we single out Allah. That's the meaning of Tawheed. Tawba. When you seek repentance for a sin that you've done, you seek the repentance from Allah alone. You single out Allah with that action of yours. Fasting. Fasting. Ramadan approaching now soon too. Insha'Allah. Fasting done sincerely for Allah alone. We single out Allah with our action of fasting. Every act of worship we do, then we do it sincerely and purely for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's known as the Tawheed of worship. In Arabic, Al-Uluhiyyah. The Tawheed of worship, where we are singling out Allah with our actions, our worship. And our worship can be from the heart. There are certain types of worship from the heart. Loving Allah, having fear of Allah, depending on Allah, worships from the heart, we single them out to Allah. We don't depend on others besides Allah. We don't depend on the dead in their graves. 
We don't have our trust and reliance upon the dead. We don't make our dua to the dead. Actions of the heart to Allah alone. Actions of the tongue. Upon your tongue, you recite the Qur'an, you do dhikr, you do supplication, you do dua. All of that, actions of the tongue, worships upon the tongue, singled out to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. And then also actions upon the limbs, actions upon the limbs, physical acts of worship, prayer, hajj, various physical acts of worship too, all singled out and done purely for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So us singling out everything we do to Allah alone, sincere and pure, wanting the reward from Him to be entered into paradise in the afterlife, that is tawheed of worship to Allah, known as al-uluhiyyah. There is one more type too, and that's known as the tawheed of the names and attributes of Allah. That should be easy to understand because we spoke about it briefly just a while ago. The tawheed of the names and attributes of Allah. Basically meaning that we make Allah single and unique. It's always the same beginning. To make Allah single and one and unique in terms of His <coughs> names and attributes. And we already mentioned a couple of them. Allah, Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. These types of names, they are the perfect and beautiful names of Allah. And we single out Allah with those names. That's why, for example, you cannot name somebody Allah. Impossible. Impossible. Cannot be done. You do not do that. Neither can you name somebody Ar-Rahman. Ar-Rahman. You cannot name somebody with that name. If you want to name somebody with that name, you have to say Abdul Rahman, the slave of Ar Rahman. Ar Rahim. If you want to name somebody with that, you can't just say Ar Rahim. You have to say Abdul Rahim, the servant of Ar Rahim. So we single out Allah with those names and those attributes. The attributes, as an example, we spoke about Rahmah, the mercy of Allah. The mercy of Allah, then no matter what mercy we have to one another, the mercy of a mother to her child, then it is not like the mercy of Allah to His creation. Allah, unique in His attributes, the most perfect of attributes, without any deficiency or shortcoming in them. We have mercy. Do we not as humans, as believers, have mercy? Absolutely. A person is merciful to another. We have mercy. But is our mercy we have anywhere like the mercy of Allah? Not at all. 
any mercy we have, it cannot be compared to the mercy of Allah. So that's the meaning of Tawheed in the names and attributes of Allah. That you make Allah single and unique with those names and attributes in their perfection for Allah. As for us, we don't have the perfection in them. Like Ar-Rahim, we could say, without the Al, you could say Rahim. Somebody's name has Rahim, without the Al. Kareem, without the Al. Those names, merciful, generous, Rahim, Kareem, even if a person has those names, does that person have perfection in those names and in those attributes? Somebody is called Kareem, generous. And yet, one day, he may do something to you that is very ungenerous. He isn't perfect in that name. He isn't perfect in that attribute. We have deficiency. Allah does not have deficiency, does not have any shortcoming. So the names and attributes of Allah is another type of Tawheed. Tawheedul Asma'i wa Sifat. That we single out Allah in those perfect and beautiful names and attributes. And even if some of those are known amongst creation in other forms, we are deficient in them. So those are three types of Tawheed. Three ways that we as the servants of Allah single out Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Should be very clear. Now coming back to the point. In the book it said, اِعْلَمْ رَحِمَكَ اللَّهِ أَنَّ التَّوْحِيدُ هُوَ إِفْرَادُ اللَّهِ سُبْحَانَهُ وَتَعَالَى بِالْعِبَادَةِ He said, no, may Allah have mercy upon you. Tawheed is to single out Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with worship. So that definition he's given you, it appears to be referring to one of the three categories in particular. Hands up, which one? Al-Uluhiyyah, Rochdale. Rochdale taking all the points today. Al-Uluhiyyah, it seems to be referring to, not seems, it is. It is referring to Al-Uluhiyyah, the worship of Allah. Whereas we now understand Tawheed isn't just the Tawheed of worship to Allah. It is also the Tawheed of Lordship and the Tawheed of the names and attributes. But then why did he mention that category especially? Why not mention, no, that Tawheed is, and then give you all the categories. Why did he pick that one to mention in the definition? Hands up. Correct. Because historically, throughout time, from the beginning of the prophets and messengers to the last messenger, Muhammad bear this in mind, all of the prophets and messengers had enemies. Correct? 
Correct. All of the prophets and messengers from the beginning to the end, they had enemies. They had people who were against them. Why were they against them though? Were those people against the prophets and messengers because they didn't agree in the Tawheed of Lordship, for example? Because the prophets and messengers were teaching these three categories, these types of Tawheed to all of their people throughout history. All of the prophets and messengers had that same revelation about Tawheed. So did the people have enmity against the prophets and messengers because they didn't like the issue of Tawheed of Lordship? Or because they didn't like Tawheed of Worship? Or because they didn't like the Tawheed of Names and Attributes? Which one was the real problem for the people against their prophets and messengers? It was the Tawheed of Worship. And the Tawheed of Worship meant that we single out Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with our actions, our worship. All of the people throughout history, the mushrikun used to worship lots of different gods. Some of them worship the sun, some of them the moon, some of them the stars, some of them statues and idols, some of them in the graves, the dead people, lots of different things. So when the prophets and messengers came to them and told them, Tawheed of worship means you have to single out all of your worship to just Allah, not any of these other false gods. Then the people opposed them. So the biggest opposition was about Tawheed of worship. The people didn't really oppose the prophets and messengers about lordship or even names and attributes to the degree. In lordship, throughout history, the people agreed, yes, Allah, Allah is the creator. Yes, Allah is the one who gives life and death. Yes, Allah is the one who controls the universe. Mostly the people didn't have an issue with that. They believed in that. But what they didn't believe in and what they didn't want to do was to single out their worship to Allah alone. That was always the key. In this book, the doubts that the people brought against the shaykh, they are focused around that type of tawheed. Tawheed of worship. Because all of these doubts that they were bringing were to try and show that you can do some types of worship, dua and things to other than Allah. So the focus here is on the tawheed of worship. Hence the definition that he gives is the definition explaining the tawheed of worship. It should be known that those categories of Tawheed all come together. A person cannot be Muslim if he believes in the Tawheed of Lordship alone. A person says he believes Allah is the creator, Allah is the provider, Allah is the sustainer, Allah is the one who gives life and death, Allah is the one who created everything, Allah is the one who controls everything. All of that he believes in. But that doesn't make a person Muslim, even if you believe in all of that. Because what's needed on top of that, that's just the Tawheed of Lordship. 
you also need the tawheed of worship and the tawheed of the names and attributes. All of that is needed to enter into Islam. So here he mentions that definition. Then he says, وَهُوَ دِينُ الرُّسُلِ الَّذِي أَرْسَلَهُمُ اللَّهُ بِهِ إِلَىٰ عِبَادِهِ He says that, meaning that Tawheed, the Tawheed, that Tawheed is the religion of all the messengers. It is the religion of the messengers that Allah sent to His servants, meaning all of them. All of the messengers Allah sent, they all got the same revelation when it comes to Tawheed. All of them came to call the people to the worship of Allah alone. Allah mentions in the Quran, وَلَقَدْ بَعَثْنَا فِي كُلِّ أُمَّةٍ رَسُولًا أَنِ اعْبُدُوا اللَّهَ وَاجْتَنِبُوا الطَّاغُوتِ That indeed we sent to every nation a messenger preaching to them, worship your Lord alone and stay away from the false deities. Meaning do the tawheed, tawheed of worship, al-uluhiyya and the other aspects. Worship your Lord alone and stay away from the false deities. In other ayat it mentions all of the prophets and messengers used to say to their people, Ya O people, worship Allah. You do not have any other deity to worship besides Him. So all of the prophets and messengers, they came with this message. Meaning, all of the prophets and messengers were Muslims. Do not be any under any misconception, thinking that Isa, Jesus was Christian, or that Musa, Moses was Jewish. The prophets and messengers, all of them were Muslim. They all came with Tawheed. They all came with this message of calling to the worship of Allah alone. Isa alayhi salam, Jesus, never ever mentioned Trinity to the people, that there is the Father, the Son, the Ghost, never. That is not from the da'wah of Isa alayhi salam. That is not from the revelation that came in the, in the uh, Bible. Neither at the time of Musa alayhi salam, he did not come claiming that Uzair is the son of God or any of the other falsehood and lies that they have against Allah in their religion. He came with the call to Tawheed. So bear that in mind. All of the prophets and messengers, all of them came with Islam. They all came to teach the people the religion of Tawheed. Yes, at different prophets and messengers, there were different rules about what is halal and what is haram. There are some things now in our religion, of the religion taught to us by Muhammad the final revelation, some things are haram and some things are halal. Whereas at the time of Isa in his revelation, 
some of those things may have been halal which are haram now. And some of those things may have been haram which are halal now. Different prophets and messengers, the halal and the haram and the sunnah would have been different at each prophet and messenger. But the overall basis of the revelation was always the same. Because the basis of the revelation for all of them was Tawheed. Then after that, the different laws of halal, haram, what you can, can't do, they may have been different. How to pray, how to do different things would have been different. But the basis was Tawheed. So that's why he says, وَهُوَ دِينُ الرُّسُلِ الَّذِي أَرْسَلَهُمُ اللَّهُ بِهِ إِلَىٰ عِبَادِهِ It, the Tawheed, is the religion of the messengers whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent uh, to his servants. It is the religion of the messengers that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent to his servants. And the reason why Allah sent the messengers to his servants is so that we would not have any excuse on the day of judgment. Allah created us and put us on this earth for a reason, with an objective, a goal. Allah didn't just create us and leave us on this earth for no reason, without any goals or objectives. Allah gave us a goal and an objective to fulfill Whilst we are on this earth, what's that goal and objective? Hands up. <coughs> what? To worship Allah alone. Because Allah told us in the Quran, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ Allah told us, I did not create the jinn or the humans except for them to worship me. That's the reason why Allah created us. Then, after Allah created us for us to worship Him, it would have been an excuse to say we didn't know how to worship Allah. So Allah sent the prophets and the messengers and sent the revelations and the books to teach us how to worship Him how to be upon Tawheed, so that nobody has any excuse we didn't know. We didn't know how to worship Allah upon Tawheed. So Allah sent all of those prophets and messengers with the revelation, teaching us how to worship Allah, how to be upon Tawheed. فَأَوَّلُهُمْ So the first of them was Nuh. The first of the messengers. The first of the messengers was Nuh alayhi salam. فَأَوَّلُهُمْ نُوحٌ عَلَيْهِ salam. The first of them was Nuh alayhi salam. And the evidence for that the evidence that Noah, Nuh alayhi salam, was the first of the messengers to be sent, 
is in the Quran. Surah An-Nisa 163, where it mentions, "Inna awhayna ilayka, kama awhayna ila nuhin wa nabiyina min ba'di." Allah says, "Indeed, we." revealed, gave the revelation to you, just like we gave the revelation to Nuh and the messengers after him. So it's mentioned the revelation was given to Noah, to Nuh, and then the messengers after him, indicating Nuh was the first one then. Because in the ayah it says, then the other prophets after, to Nuh and the prophets after him. So that indicates Nuh was the first of the messengers to come to be sent by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There is a story behind the sending of Nuh why was Nuh sent? What was the reason for Allah sending him? When was he sent? What was the story behind that all? There is a story to it. And of course, if you read the stories of the prophets, you will come across that story under the chapter of the story of Nuh the story of why he was sent and what was happening at that time. What time was that? When was Nuh sent? Relative to Adam. Adam was the first person created. Adam Then the generations began to expand after him. How far down, how many years later after Adam was Nuh alayhi salam sent. Hands up. It's the same hands getting bored. Nobody else. How many years after Adam alayhi salam was Nuh alayhi salam sent? So at the top, Adam alayhi salam. Then his sons and his family and then the people began to expand and become bigger in number. One generation, next generation, next generation, their sons, their sons, their sons. People began to expand. Where in that timeline does Nuh alayhi salam come? A hundred and fifty. Okay. Any other uh, answers? Ten generations. A generation in Arabic, in the hadith, it mentions Qarn. Normally, in Arabic, that refers to a hundred years. Which would mean that from when Adam alayhi salam, Allah created Adam alayhi salam, from that to when Nuh alayhi salam came, there was a thousand years, ten generations, ten generations of people, they say a thousand years. 
from when Adam was there to when Nuh came, there was a gap, there was a time of a thousand years. In that thousand years from when Adam lived up until Nuh came, in that thousand years, all of the people that existed then, and they would have been few at the beginning, expanding slowly, all of those people then in that first 10 generations were all upon what religion? Hands up. Upon what religion? Go on down there. I can't see anything, just a hand at the top. Go on. Huh? Islam. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created mankind default upon Islam. Upon Tawheed, Adam السلام, and the people created, all of us created, default upon Tawheed. That's the default of mankind, created upon Tawheed. Then, and the hadith, it proves that, there is a hadith where the Prophet وسلم, said, كُلُّ مَوْلُودٍ يُولَدُ عَلَى الْفِطْرَةِ ثُمَّ أَبَوَاهُ يُهَوِّدَانِهِ أَوْ يُنَصِّرَانِهِ أَوْ يُمَجِّسَانِهِ كما قال That every newborn, every baby, the Prophet said, every baby is born upon the natural way, the natural disposition, the innate nature as they call it, meaning the default. And the default is Tawheed. Every newborn is born upon that Tawheed. Then the Prophet said, afterwards his parents may make him into a Christian or a Jew or a Masian. Afterwards they change, but every baby is born upon Tawheed. So those first 10 generations of people, all of them were upon Tawheed. And there is actually a hadith that even says exactly that. Hadith in Al-Bukhari, where it mentions, كَانَ بَيْنَ آدَمْ وَنُوحَ عَشَرَةَ قُرُونَ كُلُّهُمْ عَلَى التَّوْحِيدِ Between Adam and Nuh were ten generations. Hadith in Bukhari, that's why we know it was a thousand years. Ten generations. And the hadith says, كُلُّهُمْ عَلَى التَّوْحِيدِ All of them were upon Tawheed. Muslims, Tawheed, no shirk, nothing. All of them upon Tawheed. Then in the 10th generation thereabouts, something changed. Something happened. Which meant that shirk occurred for the first time in the history of mankind. Something happened at the 10th generation or there or thereabouts in order for shirk to appear. What happened around about the 10th generation for shirk to have appeared? A thousand years they were all upon Tawheed. How did the shaitan manage to get them onto shirk after a thousand years? Then what we can say is, you don't need to wait a thousand years for the answer. Inshallah, just seven days. So next week, Inshallah Ta'ala, We'll carry on from that point regarding the story of how shirk first appeared. 
Because that will then explain to us why Allah sent Nuh alayhi salam. We're talking about why Allah sent Nuh. We need to understand the story to understand why Nuh alayhi salam was sent. So next week we'll begin with that story, or carry on from where we left off, with that story insha'Allah ta'ala. So we'll round off on that for tonight and uh, just take a couple of questions if we're able. Is there a reason why Sharia law was different or changed for some prophets and messengers? We said all of the prophets and messengers had the same basis of the revelation. The same basic revelation. That was the revelation of Tawheed. But the laws, the Sharia, the rules, what's haram, what's halal, what you know, different worship, how to do it. Those rules would have been different for different prophets and messengers. The question is saying, why? So who can answer that? Hands up. Why? Why would it be different for different prophets and messengers? Different laws, different rules, different halal, different haram, different how you worship Allah. Why were those things different? When the basis was the same for everybody, Tawheed. Hands up, who can tell us? Go on. Speak louder. Because of? Time. Because it was different times. That's true. All of the prophets and messengers were in different times. That's correct. They were in different times and they had different laws. But why did they have the different laws? Anybody else? Because the religion isn't complete, but they were different revelations, different altogether. But why were they different? Why were they given different laws and different rules? Because the people were different. Okay. People faced different challenges. Is that what you said? They faced different challenges? Uh-huh. Go on, last one. You're right. At each time, there was a different laws, different regulations. And the reason is, these kinds of things, what some of the brothers have mentioned, in different times, there are different people. There are different circumstances, different situations. Upon the wisdom of Allah, because Allah does everything upon wisdom, Allah sent the relevant and appropriate laws and sharia for the people at their relevant times. Allah sent the appropriate laws that were suitable to every generation, every people, every nation in their times. Because there are different times, different nations, different people throughout history, different situations. So Allah sent for them what was appropriate upon His wisdom for them at that time. 
Whereas the basis, that doesn't change any time. The basis of Tawheed is the same at all times, that never changes. But other things can change in relation to what is appropriate for those people at the time. So certain things could be halal at that time, which are haram now. An example of that at the time of Yusuf salam, it was permissible to prostrate to other than Allah, not the prostration of worship, not to prostrate to somebody to do worship to them because that would be against Tawheed and all the messengers came with the same Tawheed. But it was allowed to bow to somebody out of respect. That was allowed at that time. To bow to somebody out of respect, curtsy. But now in this final revelation, the final Sharia, are you allowed to bow to anyone even just out of respect, not worship, nothing, just respect and honor for a person? Allowed? Not allowed. So that's an example. And there are other examples like that. But the point being, it was appropriate for every time what they were given. Upon the wisdom of Allah, what was appropriate for them. Is our prayer accepted if we pray behind someone who wears trousers? When you pray, it is one of the conditions of the prayer that you must cover your aura. The aura, uh, the private region. And the amount of your body that you have to cover, which comes under the aura, is different for a man compared to a woman, compared to a child. The amount of your body and where from your body you have to cover up differs between a man and a, a, a woman and a child. A woman, for example, her aura in the prayer is how much of the body, what part of the body? Everything. The woman must cover all of her body and the only thing that can be exposed is the face and the hands. The rest of the body must be covered. That's the aura of the woman. She cannot pray even if she's at home in privacy. No other person there. She can't wear something which is exposing any of her body parts. In the prayer, her aura is to cover everything. Only the hands and the face. The point though is different levels of aura, but they all have one consistent thing, one constant. Covering your aura means what? How do you cover the aura? What's the meaning of covering your aura? Let's say for example, now your private area. How do you cover your private area? You put some clothes on so you can't see through. That's one um, aspect of covering the aura. There are two aspects. One aspect of covering the aura is visibly you cannot see the aura. So the garments that you wear have to be thick enough that you can't see through them and still see the aura. But what's the second aspect of covering the aura? The form, the shape. The shape of the aura must be covered too. Meaning, imagine now an easy example. You've seen those lycra shorts that cyclists and these types of things they wear. Is it covering your aura in terms of being able to see? You can't see. It's covering your aura. 
you can't see through that lycra, whatever they call it, material. So it's covering it in terms of not being able to see. But the physical shape of the aura, is that being covered? Absolutely not. Therefore, that is not covering your aura. That isn't covering your aura. Aura is covered by physically not being able to see through it, and neither being able to see the shape of the, the body part, the private area uh, from behind it. <coughs> Meaning, to cover your aura, the garment must be thick enough so you can't see through it, and it must be loose enough so that your body shape can't be seen. That's covering the aura. People are under a misconception, a mistake thinking that covering the aura is just putting something on so you can't see through it, even though the full body shape can be seen. That's a mistake. Covering the aura is so you can't see through it and loose enough that you can't see the shape of the body. So now this question says somebody wearing trousers. Trousers, do they cover the visible aspect? You can't see through. But do they cover the shape of the body, the shape of the, the gluteus maximus of the individual? Then no, depends. You're right, it depends. If they are loose and baggy, yes. If they are your standard, then no. And fashion, fashion as they call it, then these days from what appears to be the case, is that the tighter it is, then the better it looks, apparently. And I remember years ago, 20 years ago when I used to live in Manchester, I remember one time going to look for loose pant, uh, trousers, to look for some loose baggy trousers. Everywhere you go, all you can find is the standard. Standard track suits, standard jeans. As soon as you put them on and go into Rokur, what happens? All of the shape you can see. As soon as you go into prostration, all of the shape, because those pants, those trousers, they're not baggy enough, they're not loose enough. As soon as you go tight into ruku, sujood, they go tight to your body, you can see all the shape. So I was looking and looking and searching and searching. I went all around the various areas in the uh, central area of Manchester, couldn't find anything. The only place where I found something an anecdote, the only place where I found it was in a goth store. You know, the goth, goth, whatever they call it. You know, gothic or goth. Those, those, you, know, you know what I'm talking about. There they had much of big, loose, baggy pants, everything. One of those stores, they had it in there. As for everywhere, and that's deemed, that's deemed as the abnormal. The goth, people who dress as a goth, I don't know if it's a thing anymore, but in those days when they used to dress as a goth, that was seen as abnormal, uh, abnormal, an abnormality. You're, you're out of the ordinary, a goth, as opposed to everybody else. So that abnormality of covering your aura is an abnormality. Not that we're praising goth, but the, the garments, <laughs> the garments, that's the point. So trousers, normal trousers, normal uh, track suits and normal jeans, they don't cover your aura properly. You know, everybody knows, when you go into Rukua, somebody comes into the mosque behind you now, the whole shape can be seen. Go into a prostration, the whole shape can be seen of your posterior. So it's not covering your aura properly. So be aware, in prayer, you should not pray in those types of garments. Generally, you shouldn't wear garments that are tight, 
any any uh, trousers and things like that okay it's, it's allowed but they should be loose loose garments loose and baggy that they cover your aura uh, and so if somebody prays with trousers on it is a mistake and you are not covering your aura properly but if somebody led the prayer in trousers the question is asking about the validity of your prayer praying behind them your prayer would be valid no, uh, scholars don't say that your prayer is invalid in that circumstance your prayer is valid but that person has made an error and a mistake in praying in that way in garments that are not properly covering the aura you know uh, is there a different opinion of scholars where the aura is because i heard like you know above the... that's a, a, another discussion for another day the levels of the aura in the prayer basically for a man it must be as a minimum from Navel to, navel to the knee but then there are narrations that talk about covering from over your shoulder so you should cover your body appropriately in the prayer you're standing before Allah and you're supposed to take your beauty when standing before Allah so you cover yourself properly in the time of the Salaf they used to have one garment there are narrations where some of them had one garment and they struggled to properly cover themselves in it and their shoulders were left exposed the men their shoulders were left exposed, etc. But these days, alhamdulillah, there's hardly anybody who suffers from that type of situation. The people have the garments and plentiful garments. So wear them properly, loosely covering yourself and praying. That topic of the aura and what it covers, uh, it's, it's a topic you find it in the books of fiqh. Uh, and uh, the aura of a man compared to the aura of a woman, compared to the aura of a slave man or woman and some of those details may be shocking to some and we won't mention them today it's a different topic so does shahada have to be re-announced or re-pronounced for the person who does not pray salah out of laziness intentionally uh, this depends on the issue of whether a person is a kafir or not upon abandoning the prayer some scholars they say if you abandon the prayer you are a kafir so now when you start praying and you start practicing you've now entered and you you're a muslim now and you're doing your worship it's like one time somebody asked a sheikh abdul muhsin al-abbad that i missed my fasting last year and my fasting my prayer i never used to do it i never used to fast or pray i missed it last year the year before so the ramadan that i missed last year and the year before and, and the year before how do i make them up sheikh the Sheikh said, what are you talking about? There's nothing for you to make up. You just said in your question, you weren't fasting or praying. You weren't even Muslim in those days then. So now that you are, Alhamdulillah, now it's good. You don't have to make anything up. You weren't praying or fasting, you weren't even Muslim then. Now you are praying and, uh, and doing everything else, now carry on. Nothing to make up from before. So there's a difference about whether a person is a kafir or not upon abandoning the prayer. The covenant between us and them is the prayer. The one who abandons the prayer has committed kufr. The Prophet said, or has committed shirk. So there's a difference though, whether the person is a kafir or not. Many of the scholars, they do say that the individual is a kafir for abandoning the prayer. Others, they say no. As long as he understands tawheed and is upon tawheed, then this laziness of abandoning the prayer, even though he is in line for severe punishment on the day of judgment, 
Because the first thing you get asked about on the Day of Judgment is about your prayer. But they say we don't say he is out of the fold of Islam. So inshallah ta'ala upon that basis, if somebody never used to pray, wasn't practicing nothing, now they are, then upon you is to repent and seek forgiveness for your previous life and how you were and to just continue now upon prayer, upon salah, etc. And it doesn't necessitate having to take a shahada inshallah. Go on, last question. Depends on that. The ones who say he is a kafir, they say do not bury him with the Muslims. Muslims. The ones who say he never used to pray. Because look, the difference between the Muslim and the non-Muslim, the second highest pillar of Islam after Tawheed is the prayer. A person doesn't even pray. On the day of judgment, you will be asked as the first thing about your prayer. Umar ibn al-Khattab. Umar ibn al-Khattab, when he was leading the prayer, and he was stabbed. That man came, tried to kill him and stabbed him with a double-sided dagger. Came and stabbed him and then ran away and killed another six or 13 companions as he ran away. When he stabbed Umar ibn al-Khattab, he had stab wounds that were so deep that when he would drink milk, it would pour out. Pour out, go down his digestive system, stab wounds everywhere. In the digestive system, the milk would go in and flow out from the wounds. Yet when it came to the prayer, they said to Umar ibn al-Khattab about the prayer, he said, As-salah, as-salah. فَمَنْ تَرَكَ الصَّلَاةِ فَلَا حَفْضَ لَهُ مِنَ الدِّينِ He said, absolutely, the prayer. He said, the one who doesn't pray, then he doesn't have any share in Islam. And there are other narrations from the Salaf. They said, the last thing that leaves a person from his religion is the prayer. Meaning, once your prayer has gone, then what have you got left of Islam? Hence, you have an opinion of many of the scholars saying that the one who abandons the prayer, then he's not Muslim. So it's very dangerous. But now a person who's practicing, they've started praying, they've started doing their worship to Allah, they've recognized, they've realized, Allah's guided them to Islam, then repent from what you were upon before, and now continue upon that path of obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we'll round off on that for today then, it's getting late. Inshallah ta'ala, we'll carry on with that next section next week, straight after the Isha prayer. Once again, inshallah ta'ala. Wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.